You're listening to the Barry Egan Tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan from the Sunday Independent, and I'm talking with Brett Easton Ellis. Brett, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Brett, can I ask you, um, Martin Amos once said to be a successful novelist, you have to be a failure as a human being. How have you got on? Uh, I think many people feel that's true about me. Yeah. I think many people. Do you feel that about yourself? I don't feel that way about myself at all. I actually don't think that's true. I mean, I think that's kind of dramatic, and I can understand Martin saying this, but I think you have to be actually a pretty put together human being in order to concentrate, put words together, put sentences together, have the concentration to complete a book. I don't know. To me, that's not. You can't be a an F up. You can't be a failure of a human being. And What was your childhood like? Looking back now yeah. from the uh, vantage point of a white privileged male, yeah, better than I thought it was at the time. Uh, luckier than I thought I was at the time. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I grew up in a part of Los Angeles called the San Fernando Valley, a valley boy. Yeah. I didn't grow up in the Ritzier part of town. I didn't grow up in Beverly Hills or Bel Air or the West Side. And I went to school with a bunch of kids who did. So I always felt that my family was lacking in something, even though, you know, it was a nice middle, upper middle class upbringing. What age were you when, when they divorced? Well, they never really, I don't think, finalized a divorce. They separated when I was about 17 or 18. And it was about time. And had you gone through your youth of them fighting in front of you, that kind of thing? Oh, of course I did, yeah. Yeah. They were classic boomers, classic boomer parents, very wrapped up in their lives, very much in love with each other. And I think there's a problem for parents who are still wildly in love with each other because the kids kind of get pushed off to the side and neglected. And it's not about the kids at all. It's about them and their relationship. And so it was a classic boomer marriage in, the, in that respect. Um, uh, perhaps in a way, take, take, they, I think they took some of their cues from Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and the rows Whatever they got into and that whole thing. So yeah. I don't know. But yeah, they Who's did that. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I, but I do think that... Uh, the divorce and the separation were fine. That wasn't a problem at all. It was everything that preceded that. Which was what? Which was the fighting. And, and the, 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 there's a g- ghost child. Is it in Lunar Park? Is that you as, as a child being tortured? So interesting. Uh, Lunar Park is this autobiographical uh, novel I wrote about a writer named Brady Sinellis who's in kind of a Stephen King novel. It's kind of a haunted house novel about a writer falling apart. And I am a lot of the people in that novel. I'm I'm obviously a version of Brady Sinellis. I'm obviously um, the boy in the book, his son in many ways. Uh, I'm also my father, uh, Brady Sinellis. I'm also Robert Ellis in a way, uh, my father. I'd say your shrink would have a, a field day with you. Uh, I, <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I went to shrinks a, a few times. And I wasn't really the problem with going to shrinks is if you're not willing to open up to them, it's a complete waste of time. You've got to be able to just like tear yourself open and go for it. If you're just going to, I don't know, get medication or to complain about your life or whatever. Um, and I did one. I, I did see an actually I, I saw a good one. The last one I ever had to see was was really good. And he just said, how long ago was that? That was in 2009. This is when you were having your nervous breakdown. I was having a nervous breakdown. Because you said 2008 was the lowest point in your life. It was. Uh, ridiculously in, in so many ways. It was just the most painful. I was just your, the saddest. Your boyfriend had died. Was it? You were together for six years. Well, no. My boyfriend of uh, seven years had actually died in 2004. Yeah. Uh, out of the blue, suddenly of an aneurysm. And he was young. He was 30. And they found him in his studio. And he had just walked. Uh, he had just left my apartment 
and gone to his studio and he was, you know, still clutching the bags of groceries he just bought. So it was super, he, according to the doctor, they had, he didn't know what, he had no idea what hit him. That really unmoored me. And I, that's one of the, that's the catalyst for why I ultimately left New York after living there for about 20 years. Well, how did you come out of your of your the worst year of your life? You know what? You just you just uh, you can't maintain the pose any longer. That's what a man's midlife crisis is. It's a pose. You're you're posing. You're you uh, want to stay youthful. Uh, you don't want to be supplanted by younger people coming your way. And I think there's this kind of panic and sadness. Is that, that why you're being you seem to have a penchant for younger men then? Uh, I think everyone has a thing for younger men. I think everyone has a thing for younger people. I don't think that's so yeah. strange. But your, or... your boyfriend is, is Todd. He's, he's, what is he, 32? You're 55. He's 32. I'm 55, uh, yeah. yeah. Some people might say, gross. <laughs> Once you don't say that, that's <laughs> Well, how old is Alec Baldwin compared to his wife? I think they have an even larger, uh, I think there's a, a, a large school of men who are interested in younger people. Yeah. And what, what do you talk about around the dinner table? Are you rowing about... Trump and elections and stuff like that? Uh, we were, uh, definitely. Uh, I, I don't think I was rowing as much as he was just complaining and I was just passively listening to him. Does, uh, does you being passive annoy him more? Oh, it does. Yeah. It does. He hates this whole Gen X crap uh, about me being indifferent and ironic and cool. And it's all absurd anyway, so why can't Trump be president? You know, he doesn't, he can't deal with that mindset. He's a passionate millennial. He's a passionate socialist Democrat. And he's, well, verging on communists. And he is very, very po- political, very progressive. And I'm, I am, I am more or less indifferent to the absurdities of American politics. I really am, and I just do not care. Yeah, what would the the young Brett have thought of you now? Well, I think he would have been impressed that I made it. I think he alive. would have been impressed that I made it alive, and I think that uh, he would say, "Oh, you know, I I always knew it was going to end up this way." Really? I think I think he, uh, the young Brett always had an idea that you'd end up in uh, Los Angeles uh, in your fifties, and probably with someone much younger. And uh, uh, trying to get a movie made, yeah, which is what I've been doing for quite a while. Because what, what is it's Imperial Bedrooms in two thousand and ten? Clay talks about um, AA meetings, and you went to AA meetings. I did in LA, not to get off drink, but no. to try and get off with some guy you fancied. Yeah, is that's that true. true? That is true. And um, uh, that's that was where I was at. That was the beginning of the midlife crisis. That was right there, two thousand and six. People, um, yeah, you seem to be led uh, to a large extent, like a lot of young men, by your penis for a, you know. For it a stops. Few it stops. But and it's the, freedom. But at the time of American Psycho, you, you told me you were sleeping exclusively with with, with um, prostitutes because you didn't want to, you didn't want the commitment issues. Uh, no, I've only been with a male prostitute once, and that was no, way that before was American Psycho. Female prostitute, you said. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was really talking about a lot of different things. <laughs> that I don't think. A, it, oh, 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 oh! A wait, week-long wait, heroin wait, binge in the wait, night as well. You are right. Yeah. There was female prostitutes. You're absolutely I'm not right. Making this up. No, oh you're God. right. <laughs> I've I've forgotten all of this stuff. 
Yes, there were. Uh, oh, man, I can't even believe it. I thought, really, I was that free? I was just telling you all this stuff that I had, I had actually Heroin gotten a couple of uh, high-class high uh, female escorts. I had. That's yeah. true. I, I, but, I had you, but you made the point. I, I, but it wasn't that often. But it wasn't yeah, that often. That, that it was that you didn't want to. Eventually, you found that you wanted to have sex in a meaningful relationship but at that time you oh you know i don't know meaningful relationship and sex and tying that together i think that's a notion that we've been sold that's just not reality i think the movies have sold us that i think i don't know this notion that sex equals <clears throat> the pleasures of sex equals meaningful relationship or marriage or children mm. i don't know i think our sexual our sexuality is a lot more uh, lawless than that and a lot more it's, it just can't be conformed to the notion of i have to love somebody i have to be in a mean, meaningful relationship i did for a while I, and i think it's because i'm i'm kind of a child of aids and when my sexuality was really uh really coming into full force when I was uh, in college uh, was the AIDS epidemic hit. And I think that scared people so badly that I did immediately get into a relationship that lasted for seven years that was pretty exclusive, you know. Um, So that might have been it. But (laughs) you got me to slip out that I hired a male escort and that I actually did a couple of times sleep with female escorts. I can't believe it. I never would have thought when I woke up this morning that this is what I've been talking about on radio. Well, this is the joy of radio. <clears throat> joy. Um, what was it that, about your dad that prompted you to um, say that Patrick Bateman was based on him? Well, it was in many ways an easy out from the hardcore reality that so much of Patrick Bateman was based on me. And because of the controversy at the time, and because my father was a businessman, and because Patrick Bateman did believe in a lot of the things that my father believed in, like, Status is everything. Class is everything. Money is more important than anything else. Um, the the psycho killer aspect of it, of course, was not based on my father. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, right. So I don't, I and mean, I think everybody uh, who who knew my father and knew me knew that that wasn't what I was talking about. I was just talking about the status obsessed young man who really um, was. I actually, when I talk about him that way, yeah, that was more my dad. I was the person who was trying to come of age in a society that I thought was utter BS. And I just thought all the values of the yuppiedom, the Reagan 80s, and being in New York, and what it meant to be a successful man, I just, I couldn't buy into, and yet I wanted to fit in. And so I kept kind of chasing it and thinking that, oh, this is going to make me happy if I do this, or if I buy this, or if I go there. And it was all, it was all a crock, you know? And that was really what the book was about. The book was about not wanting to grow up in a society that you simply don't share the values of the society. I think that's actually a pretty universal story. And, and I think maybe that is why American is, Psycho uh, Lunar holds. Park an apology for American Psycho? You know, it seemed that way to many people who did not like American Psycho. And I know that the New York Times, for example, who did not like American Psycho at all, uh, was overly invested in Lunar Park. And they gave it a lot of nice articles, and they were very pleased that Brett Ellis came around. And we were right in 1990 and 91 when we published 18 articles trying to cancel that novel. And uh, no, of course it wasn't. It wasn't an apology at all. Uh, it was more of, in, in many ways, it was more of an apology to my father by that time because it really was an exorcism about all the negative feelings I had for him. And finally, when, first of all, when I finished the book, the last couple of pages of the book, uh, 
I felt everything go. And I know that sounds so ridiculous. I remember sitting at my desk, typing these last pages up, and it just went. The, you know, the hatred, the rage that I felt for my father all the time. So so it worked as that. Do you think, and excuse my amateur psychology, yeah. but the success of your first novel when you were 21, do you feel that in a sense you were emotionally stunted? You probably. remained 21 yeah, until probably. you were 31, until you were 41, hopefully not till you are 51. I would say there's traces of that 21-year-old still around. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do believe that. And, it, and it's something I battle a lot and I think a lot about every day. But, you know, in, in reality, aging forces you out of that equation. And I, I thought it was very interesting for a long time to talk about that, to say that when you become famous at a certain age, you stay that age forever, especially with child stars. You know, there's that whole notion that once you're, you know, whether it was Judy Garland or... Uh, whoever, you know, once you became a star at a certain age, you are situated at that age. You're always that age forever. I think Michael J. Fox also talked about that when uh, he became famous during Family Ties. He said, God, I never got out of Alex Keaton. I mean, I was always that age for some reason. It just was so powerful. And I think the same thing happens when you become famous at an early age that you. Uh, and you what, what else has come with age? I mean, I, I read that you talked Freedom! About- Freedom from the burden of sex. Does that Freedom. You, you, you don't do drugs anymore. You don't have sex. No posing. Well, well, Reality. <laughs> Getting rid of it all. Yeah. That's what comes with it. And it's a, a relief. The nifty 50s. You know, who knew? But it's true. It, like, you just do not give a damn anymore at a certain point. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're not chasing sex like you once were. That you're not trying to make yourself so attractive and appealing uh, to whoever. And that you are you just want to concentrate on the things that you want to concentrate on and what somebody else, not what somebody else wants you to concentrate on or not follow the values of other people because you feel it's important to be part of the group. And everyone th- wants to be on the same page, the better page, as, as you say, in, in, in white. And I think you embrace your individuality. And that is great. Um, now, I hear it's a disaster in your 60s, and then it all goes downhill, but, you know, enjoy your 50s while you can. And you were raised, was it agnostic? There was no religion. Yeah. Yeah, agnostic. What was that no like? religion. Uh, not strange in Los Angeles during the 70s, I have to tell you. Not that, not that, I didn't have a lot of friends who were going to church or a lot of friends who were, I had Jewish friends, and so there were like bar mitzvahs and things like that, but there was no... There was not a heavy religious aspect to growing up in yeah. L.A. during that time, no. And were you closer to your mother? Closer to my mom. Much closer. What was that relationship like? Um, I feel in some ways that she was protecting me from my father and that she saw potential there that my father did not see in terms of being creative and encouraging that creative side. My father, I don't think, really cared at all. I think my father... Well, had a much more hard-bitten view of the world in terms of, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're not going to write novels for a living because no one makes money writing novels for a living. You're going to you're going to go to business school and you're going to get a degree in business and that's a safe way to make money. But did he see you become successful in the cash roll in? Uh, yeah, and he changed his mind. Yeah, he changed his mind. He said, "I'm so glad he didn't listen to me." But. At the same time, it was difficult for him because my books were my books and they weren't, um, they were very critical of uh, our surroundings, our milieu, uh, somewhat critical of a parenting style that was going on. So I think he always referred secretively, at least my mom ultimately told me, to Lesson Zero as uh, that dirty little book. What did your dad think of it? Think of it? Uh, I think my dad 
was probably impressed that it even happened, that it even got published, let alone became successful. And I think he did become somewhat proud. But you have to understand, I remember a classmate of mine reading Lessons Here before it was published, and he was a pretty good writer, this guy. And he had read it, and uh, he said, you're not letting this get published, are you? And I said, what are you talking about? How do you let your parents read this book? Your your parents, what are they going to say? And I never wrote like that. I never wrote about thinking that I was going to impress my mother or impress my father. I just It was just the book I wanted to write. But I realized in that moment that a lot of people feel that way. And I think that part of the reason why my father fully couldn't embrace it was, you know, it was dirty. Yeah. It was a dirty book. And so was the next one. And then with forget American Psycho. I mean, he died a year later. After and I'm not saying that's the reason. You killed but, your father. <laughs> yeah. Well, isn't that what the son always is supposed to do? Yeah. You know? How do you look back on um, you when you're at your most wild? It was it was 2017. You you said that watching the TV, you were amazed that some of these stars now are you did they were doing lines around your kitchen table at three in the morning. Don't name them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. Um, uh, I uh, uh, look. It was fun. I'm not going to say that. It wasn't some horrible. Dramatic, painful episode do, of my life. Yeah, you, you you had fun. I had fun. It was fun. It was all fun. But Brett Easton Alice is now not just say no. Kind uh, of guy, no, I'm not just saying no. I just can't say yes. Since you did all the drugs, <laughs> you don't want anyone else. To do I just can't say yes. I've done enough drugs to last a lifetime. I have to tell you. I mean, I was the guy who was always like, you know, ordering the drugs and saying, okay, uh, I want an eight ball and I want uh, uh, two splits and I need five Valium. And then I would ask, okay, so what does everyone else want now? That was how I partied. And it was, uh, I can't believe I survived. But it wasn't because I was depressed. It wasn't because I had a void to fill. I It was it was fun. I found, I met a lot of people and, you know, I had some great times. I have no regrets about the drug stuff, except maybe I lost lost some work here or there. You know, just didn't, days were lost. When, when was the year I read that you, you didn't leave? LA for almost two years or something. That was in that was right after Mike, the boyfriend, yeah. died in two thousand and four, and I was in LA when he died. It was over the Christmas break, and so I kind of collapsed. Uh, I don't want to be too overly dramatic, but it was real hard. It was a very hard moment, and I shut down. I basically just shut down, and I stayed in LA throughout two thousand and four and into two thousand and five, and I finished uh, Lunar Park. Finished Lunar Park about, I think, it, the death really was uh, so what, a motivating you, factor to finish the book. Yeah. Is that you You had the catharsis of putting your, your father oh, into that book? Yeah. God, yeah. And then Mike's death was uh, another reason. It gave it an urgency. And so I finished it, I think, that September. And then it was published the following September in 2005. And what was going through your head when you were writing Imperial Bedroom? Well, the midlife crisis. This is the midlife crisis. Novel. I, love, I was one of my favorite lines of all time. Would you just even read it so I can have it? <laughs> <laughs> I now want to explain these things to her, but I know I never will. The most important one being, I never liked anyone, and I'm afraid of people. <laughs> Are you afraid? That's of the people? last lines of Imperial yeah. Bedrooms. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not afraid of people. Uh, I'm. Um, then I was, perhaps. I wrote that book during uh, 2007, 2008, 2009. Those were the midlife crisis years yeah. where everything seemingly was falling apart. 
And I wasn't going to write another novel after Lunar Park. Lunar Park was it. I was going to get into movies. I was going to write, direct, produce movies. And I was in that moment. I was producing and directing a movie called, uh, producing and writing a movie called The Informers, which was based on a book of mine. And it was a big budget affair. A lot of stars were in it. And it was completely falling apart. It wasn't working creatively. And I was involved with an actor. And that wasn't really working out. It wasn't real. And I, I actually write about that in White. And um, it just, everything kind of collapsed. And I would go to this book. I would go to this book every night, Imperial Bedrooms, and I would scratch out. I would scratch out a page or two of my pain, of whatever I was going at. And this book is about 162 pages long. It took three years to write. That is how uh, how long the, the scratchings took every night. You said night. at one point that you and the novel, you know, had a problem or something. or some, What happened between you and the novel? Well, the relationship that I have between, uh, well, between the novel and myself, the novel and myself, the novel, not Imperial Bedrooms, yeah, just yeah. the novel in general. Uh, I don't know. I started, I started to feel that it wasn't the way I wanted to uh, express myself as an artist. And I'd done it for many, many years, and I published, I think, a lot of books. I think seven books is a lot. And I wanted to start making movies or creating TV shows. And that was really where my passion had been for 10, the last 10 years. Sometimes it happened often badly. Uh, it really depends. Uh, you know, what is your pain threshold? What is your tolerance for pain? How long can you stay at the casino and keep gambling and keep gambling and keep gambling? You're well paid. There's no doubt about that, but it is frustrating that you uh, may have written thousands upon thousands of pages, and none of it ever gets made. None of it ever gets to the screen. I mean, Jonathan Franzen wrote, I think, 22 episodes of a of a miniseries for stars called Purity, based on his novel. That didn't happen. That got closed down. That was shut down. It happens all the time. I wrote an, I wrote an entire season of a show called The Follower for a show that jumped from HBO to stars to epics and then to Showtime. Years in the making, eleven hours. It sounds like a Brad Easton Ellis novel, and it just it does. Oh, this guy it? who big writer ends up writing scripts oh. that don't get published. They don't get Imperial played. Bedrooms. Yeah. Imperial Bedrooms is about that. That's my Hollywood novel, my grim midlife Hollywood novel. And actually, a book I didn't like when I was last year, a book but, that I didn't like promoting, and now is my favorite of my novels. But given you weren't in a great place in say two thousand and nine when you met Todd, what 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 was attracted? What what why was he attracted to you? Who knows. I don't know. Uh, who knows what that but, happened? But he also you stole him at a at a friend's dinner party. Well, I was at a dinner party and where the host uh, was very nice to me and was trying to set me up with people with his boyfriend. And it wasn't trying to set me up with his boyfriend, but with various other friends that he had. And I just liked Todd. And it was, um, you know, it was one of those things. It didn't happen that night. I mean, there was one or two other parties that we met at, and. Todd will even say it now. There was just something there. I just felt what, it. What was the there there? I don't know. I don't know what it was. He was smart. He was funny. He was intelligent. Um, and uh, and I I can't explain. And so it really was like what, three months later. It was a, I got a G chat from him saying, is something going on? We keep running into each other. And I said, I think so. He said, well, I'm going to come over. Let's talk about it. And then uh, and that, and then and it what happened. was going on in your head at that stage? Because uh, that I think I have I finally met someone that I actually like, and that I can have a relationship with. Is this the person? Is a twenty-three-year-old uh, kid from 
whatever from, from Calabasas. Uh, I mean, that? Calabasas is a, a it's where the Kardashians live. It's out in Los Angeles. Is this really what's going to happen? And it and it did. And it's been ten years, and uh, no one's inside. Are you a romantic kind of guy? Not really. Not as romantic as no, not really. Maybe that's why it works. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so that's exactly what it works. What do you do? Do you sit around watching Netflix? Uh, you know, he's kind of not that into uh, television. Occasionally, there'll be a show he likes. He's into video games. Uh, I'm into. I am more into watching TV, long form TV. I don't know about Netflix. So is he in his bedroom watching? He's in living playing room. video games. He's in the living room. And you're room on the other room. He's in the living room playing video games. I'm in the bedroom watching uh, whatever I happen to want to watch that night. Um, Fun. Yeah. Fun couple, huh? <laughs> I don't go out anymore. I don't go to parties. I can't go to a party. I can't make small talk. I can't go to screenings. I walk out of movies all the time. I have my podcast. I have my writing. What, what does he see in you? I, um, <laughs> well, he's a millennial. So what is he? He's broke. He has no friends. I mean, what? Is, I am fun compared to what, what's out do, there for him. Do you have friends? I do. I do. I have a lot of friends, actually. And I like to see them, and I like to have a one-on-one with them. Uh, I like to do it in a quiet restaurant because I'm of that age where I cannot go to loud restaurants anymore. And uh, and 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 I enjoy that. Um, but I the the party scene and, and going out is just not something that I can uh, deal with anymore. It basically, it's about small talk. It's just about the the kind of chit chat that you have to deal with when you go to any sort of event in L.A. is just not. And do fun. people when they meet you out do they expect kind of you to dispense wisdom and touch the hem of their garment and you know raise them up? Uh, no, I would hardly say that. I think they uh, usually are uh, too afraid to come over to the table, but I don't know. I don't think people see me as that kind of guy. Yeah. How do you see yourself? Um, I see myself right now as being, um, as feeling free. Yeah. Free from the constraints of uh, presentability, free from the constraints of fame, free from the constraints of, uh, I don't know. I feel that I'm, uh, opinionated and that I, uh, and I, and I'm just, I, I don't know that the fearfulness that I think everyone is feeling in this moment of, you know, authoritarian language police and everyone is tiptoeing around being so careful. I really don't care. And I don't care if I'm canceled. Cancel me. I I don't care anymore. I, I have no desire to be part of of the pod world. You know, the pod person world. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I ultimately decided to do a podcast to uh, uh, produce a podcast, is because uh, it is a vehicle where you can speak freely and say whatever you want. And also, unlike Twitter and social media, place it within context, give it nuance, and all this stuff. You, this is what you're doing. I yeah. mean, you know, like a radio What's show. What's the biggest misconception people have about you? That I'm a dick. That I'm a dick. And that anyone who's disopinionated and thinks these things must be uh, a real dick. And uh, I think a lot of people are somewhat surprised that I'm much more approachable, dare I say, warmer than yeah. I think people would think by reading my books and just seeing things oh, written read, me. Reading the recent New Yorker, but anyway, we won't go there. Uh, no, you can totally go there. I got punked. I got punked by the New Yorker. Yeah, it happened. Uh, but I, that kind of hostility on the left, and I will say it, the left, is part of the problem. It's part of the non-conversation. And I really wish that that guy had really done a real interview with me and not this kind of prank, and that we had actually had a conversation about his problems, about my problems, 
that would have been a coming together. This was a separate, a, a kind of separating device. And I just ultimately, I, I don't know what ult, what the point was. It's certainly not representative of me. It's not representative of my book, but yeah. it it got a lot of hits, and I was trending for a day because of it. A lot of it was clickbait, heavy, heavy clickbait. Have you got? I mean, we're we're talking. Whatever. We're here to talk about white. Yes. Why did you write it? Well, my agent wanted me to write a nonfiction book. And I said, why? She said, why do you, because you just should. It's been, it'll be nine years that you haven't published anything. I think you've written some interesting nonfiction. And I said, I don't think I have written any interesting nonfiction. I look back at all the nonfiction that I wrote going back to 1985 when I was writing stuff for Rolling Stone and um, none of it seemed collectible. I didn't want any of it reprinted. I didn't want an essay collection to happen. And I told her that. And she said, well, you know, you are writing for your podcast. You do these rants. You do these monologues that open every podcast. There's, surely there's something in all of those monologues you've you've written. And I said, uh, those are written to be spoken. I don't know. But I was talking to, to a friend who I dedicated White to as an editor. And I told him that I was having problems with putting together a nonfiction book. And I mentioned that my agent had said something about the podcast uh, essays. And he said, that's a great idea. I think you should do it. There's a lot of themes that you come back to over and over, whether it's aesthetics versus ideology, the cult of likability, being an actor, um, all this stuff. And so let's look through them and see what is there that is most interesting. And that is how White was put together. There's been a lot written, but and it's probably boring for you, but are you a fan of Trump or what's your position? No, fan of Trump. You know, look, there is a contrarian in me that wants to say yes. If I have to be real and honest, I can't really go there. I'm not. I am less a fan of the left's reaction to him and what they've created in him and how they've gotten Trumped. I don't like that. I actually, I would, I prefer Trump to what the left and the Democratic Party in the United States have become. That to me is the big problem. This overreach of the last three years, which is going to result, I believe, in his reelection in 2020, which there was a point where that might not have been, been so assured. But it, they lost sight of the plot. They lost sight of the story. And I have no skin. I'm not going to vote for Trump. I, have, I don't like his policies. I'm not going to vote for, for anyone, are you? I'm not going to vote for anybody, no. I'm an apathetic Gen Xer. I, politics are absurd. I don't care. But I, I actually want Todd to be happy, but I don't know who that's going to be. Is he not frog marching you down to the voting station? You'll put your ass I had a boyfriend. I had a boyfriend who marched me down to a voting station when he was running a gubernatorial campaign in Virginia. And um, I, I, that's the one time that I voted in 1993. Who did you vote for? Mary Sue Terry for governor. She lost. Brilliant. So, look, thanks to my guest, Brett Easton Ellis. Brett, thanks for coming in. It's always a joy to see you. Thank you so much for having me.